2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Let's read it. Let's backtrack a little bit, and then let's talk about it. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens, the new earth, in which righteousness dwells. And if you guys were here last week, you remember that our focus was on these false teachers and on these false prophets, the false Christians, the ones that we would say apostatized, the ones that fell away. And we, we describe them as scoffers because what they're doing is they're scoffing at the fact that we believe that Jesus is going to come back, right? They believe that he's not going to come back and that the world is just going to go on as it has always done. And we looked at the fact that, yes, there's a reason that the world keeps going as the way it does. There's a reason that we have the anticipation that, yeah, when I wake up tomorrow, the sun's going to rise. I've never woken up a single day in my life where the sun has not risen and it has not set at the end of the day. And that's true for all of us, right? Now, is that because of just happenstance and science? Or is that because there is a creator who is holding all of that in place, right? A creator who is allowing that. And so these scoffers would be scoffing at those who believe that Jesus is not coming back. But we believe that Jesus is coming back. And why? Because Jesus told us that he would return. Throughout scripture, it tells us that Jesus is coming back for his bride. And there's a beautiful anticipation to that. There's an excitement to that. To those who don't know Jesus, it's, it's not an excitement. One, either because you don't believe it, or two, if you somewhat believe it, it's scary because when Jesus comes back, that's the, the beginning of the end, right? It's, it's, this is where it's now all going to go downhill until Jesus then makes a new heaven and new earth, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But we see that there's a reason that the sun rises and the sun sets every day, and that it's happened for 6,000 years, and it's happened for 2,000 years since Jesus has uh, died, rose again, and ascended back into heaven. There's a reason for that. And it's simply put here in verse, in verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why has it been 2,000 years? Well, because God is long-suffering, right? Jesus could have came back the day after, but how many people would have come to a repentance and the saving knowledge of him? Not many. So God knows the time. He has an appointed time. He has the appointed people who are going to come to him, and we don't know. But we should live as if he's coming back today, right? There's a certain type of way we would live if we expect Jesus to come back every single day. And we talked about that last week, and we'll talk about it today as well but it's because of God's long-suffering. So for those very people who are scoffing that Jesus isn't coming back, they're scoffing at the fact that God is gracious and long-suffering to those very people who need him, and they need him. So Peter starts off in verse 10 by telling us that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, 
when a thief comes, obviously it's best to come at night. Why? Because you're sleeping. It's dark. You guys have thought this through. Just kidding. It's dark, yeah. Um, le- less people are, you know, walking the streets. Less people would see you. Um, you know, various reasons. You know, now a thief, when he comes, does he call you 30 minutes ahead of time and tell you he's coming? No. Why? And if you live in Johnson County, you'll get shot, right? I mean, you'll die. I mean, and, that, and that's, you know, that's part of our, our right and our right to our Second Amendment and to protecting our, our home and who we are. Um, so if you've ever thought of going into somebody's home when they didn't know, don't ever do it, okay? Because it might not end up that well, um, even if it's just a joke, because around here it's shoot first, ask questions later. But a thief does not announce himself, right? Just in the same sense as when he comes to your house, if, if you ever have or had or will have, they're not going to knock at the door, right? They're going to try and get in there uh, sneakily without you knowing uh, without being unannounced. In the same sense, that's exactly how Peter is giving us a visual of when Jesus comes back. And this, this actual analogy is not just used here in this verse here, but it's also used in the Gospels. That when Jesus comes back, it'll be like a thief in the night. That we are not going to know the hour. The only one that knows the hour is the Father, and that's what the Word tells us. So understanding that we don't know when he comes back, we just always live with an anticipation that he is. And that completely changes everything. We, we've used the analogy in the past, just a modern analogy, that if, if your parents are ever gone, if you guys have ever been left home, and you've kind of just gotten the house all messy, okay, and I gave you the example of when my wife was gone this past week, if she would have seen what the house looked like when she was there, when I, when, or when she was gone, she would have been shocked. But when she came home, the house was perfectly clean. Well, why was that? Because I knew when she was coming home. But if I didn't know... I wouldn't have letting it gotten so dirty, right? I would have constantly kept up with it, and it would have been clean because she'd have come back at any hour, right? Now, there was a reason it was dirty. It wasn't because I'm a slob. It was because of different reasons. But you get the analogy, and you guys understand this as well. You would act a certain way, and you would act differently because you didn't know when or if not somebody would be coming by to see or to uh, find you. Now, Again, when it comes to Jesus, there is a certain type of way we should live. One, because we have an anticipation of eternity coming. And two, we don't know when he is coming back. Peter goes on to say in verse 10, In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So Peter here is describing the day of the Lord when Jesus is coming back. Again, we talked about this, the verses 1 through 9, how scoffers scoff, that <laughs> scoffers scoff, that's what they do, uh, that Jesus is coming back. And uh, Peter is letting us know, one, how he is coming back. We don't know when he is coming back, but we know how he is coming back. Again, a thief does not announce himself. Christ's coming will be sudden. It will be unexpected. Uh, In Luke chapter 12, like I referenced earlier, in verses 30 through 40, uh, here in 39 verse 40, he says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And we see this reference as well in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 through 4, 
And we also see it in Revelation, in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 15, where it says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, that they see his shame. You know, and this is in reference to our morality and how we're living and to our holiness and the godliness that is in our lives or not in our lives. And we should be living holy, godly lives with the expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment. So again, the principle here, the idea here that we get is that we need to be perpetually prepared for the coming of Christ. If we constantly expect his coming, we will be prepared for his coming. Now, I don't want to get so much into the, the, the micro of the chronology of what's to come in the end times, but just to give you kind of a brief over, overview of what's to come, the next thing that's to come is that Jesus is coming, right? Yeah? Jesus is coming. He, he announced it. We see it in 1 Thessalonians that, that Jesus is coming back for his church. His church is going to be raptured. Is the word rapture in the Bible? Anybody know? No, it's not. But it's from the Greek word, which means to be caught up in the air, which we see in 1 Thessalonians. So when we, get, when we use the word rapture, it's the idea that when Jesus comes back, he's going to rapture or take, we're going to meet him up in the air. And he's going to take those who are born again off the face of the earth. Right? Whether that looks like you know, how left behind portrays it or not, I don't know. All I know is he's coming back for the church. Then at that point, we get the seven years of tribulation. Correct? Yes? Now, there's different thoughts on this. There's different viewpoints on this. But this is how and what we believe as we break down Scripture and as we look at it in context and we use it literally. And so we see seven years of tribulation. And in those first three and a half, after those three and a half years, we see the formation and the revealing of the Antichrist. So three and a half years in, the Antichrist is revealed. And then there's another three and a half years. And within those seven years, God pours out his wrath onto the earth, right? And the people who are on it. Because that is what is deserving, right? That's what we deserve. Now, the church is not appointed to wrath, and that's why we are then raptured before the wrath comes. So there's seven years of tribulation. After the seventh year, Jesus comes back, and he reigns. And he reigns for a thousand years. It's what we call the millennial reign. If you guys have been listening to the Sunday sermons, it's exactly where we're at in Revelation chapter 21. So for a thousand years, Jesus will come back and establish his kingdom here on earth. I know this sounds like, sometimes it can sound like fantasy. Uh, it's just as simple as this. Believe in Jesus, and that one day you'll see it. Okay? You don't have to understand and know everything. That's why it's called faith. So for a thousand years, he reigns. And the thousand years is awesome because Satan's locked up. There's, there's really no bad that's going on. But then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is freed and he is allowed again to do what he has done and what he's doing here on earth now because earth is his dominion. And so what he does is he deceives and, and there's evil in the world. And then after the thousand years of, of reigning, God is then we see the earth as we know it go away, and God establish a new earth and a new heaven. It's exactly what we're going to read here. So I'm giving you that, that, that overview of what's about to happen. I'm not really nitpicking in, in sections of it, but that way you know, okay, well, this is when this happens, and that's when that happens. So we're looking forward. The first thing is that Jesus is going to return, okay? And if you are born again, you can just miss the whole seven years, okay? You don't have to worry about it. 
says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And then Peter goes on to explain in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, as Peter is writing here, he's not so much worried about so much uh, the detailed chronology of the end times, okay? Uh, he's not trying to uh, give you every little detail. And he's, he's leaving out big, large gaps, okay? So when he says that the Lord's going to come as a thief in the night, and then the heavens and the earth are going to pass away, that doesn't mean that it's simultaneous. It doesn't mean that it's happening back to back. What it means is that it's going to happen, and there's a time for it to happen. And what I believe is that when Jesus comes back, that's when he comes as a thief in the night, then after the thousand-year millennial reign is when the earth and the heaven will then pass away because it has to be here for Jesus to establish his kingdom for a thousand years. So he says the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And this is interesting that the heaven, that, that basically heaven and earth as we know it are going to disappear because the words pass away carries the idea of an end, a come to an end or disappear. It means that the heavens literally will disappear. In Revelation 20, verse 11, pinpoints the time of this event, and it says, Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was, no, there was found no place for them. So the heavens will pass away, and they will pass away with a great noise. So obviously we're going to audibly be able to hear it. And the word noise has to do with a whistling, like a whistling of an arrow. It carries the idea of a rushing sound as of roaring flames with a hissing or crackling sound uh, with great suddenness. Uh, basically, it's like an explosion, right? A, a detonation. Have you guys ever heard an explosion? Have you guys ever blown anything up? All right, you're not allowed on the retreat. <laughs> so there's going to be this, this great, and, and, and Peter has already prefaced this, and he's already warned us that this is what's going to come because he told us in verse 7, the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved, right? That God is preserving the earth and the heavens that we know right now. It's because of him that we are still able to wake up every morning and do what we do. So he's preserving it by the same word that he actually caused the flood to happen many thousands of years ago and, and, and other things. But he says the same word and the same heaven, the same earth, he says in verse 7, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So remember, when he, when he judged the earth prior, he used water, right? Then he promised he would never do it again. But now, when we come to the end, he's going to judge the earth a second time, and this time it's going to be done with fire. And so that's the idea we get here, as Peter is going to explain more and more, when the heavens pass away with a great noise, and he goes on to say the elements will melt with fervent heat. Again, it's all the judgment that is coming from God, that he is destroying what has become wicked and has been tainted so that he can create something that is pure and something that is new. So, again, this is all going to take place at the conclusion of the millennial reign. Jesus even tells us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, and we kind of pass by this as we read it, and we don't really think twice about it, but he said, heaven and earth shall pass away. Right? And so when he says heaven and earth pass away, it literally means heaven and earth are going to pass away. Again, this passing away has to do with this dissolving, this, 
this perishing, right? He says there's one thing that's going to remain. You guys remember what that is? What's the one, not, the, not one, I guess one thing, but one thing that we know of that will remain? Oh, come on, people that come to church every so often. The grass fades. Yeah, the word of God, right? The word of God is the one thing that remains. And, that, and that's so pertinent and important to us because what we come to understand is that there are things that are, some things that we do in our life are just useless, right? Not that they're bad or good, but in the end, they're not going to mean anything, right? And then that's not to say, that's not to put it into perspective, well, that, you know, you start thinking, well, life is, is useless and worthless, and why do I do anything? But it's to put into perspective that there are things that I should probably be doing that are more important. It's, it's like looking at it with a lens of, okay, well, is this eternal, or is this, you know, temporal, right? And there's a lot of things that we get involved in that are temporal, but there's so much that is eternal that we, we miss out on because we don't find any enticement in it, or we just don't think that it's, it's useful. We don't see, you know, the fruit of it in the moment like we do sometimes with the temporal. And so when we look at this, we see that, yes, the word of God, which is eternal, it's something that we should focus on here on earth because it's eternal, it's important, and then there's, on the other hand, on the flip side, there's the works that we find here on earth, which are temporal, which aren't as important as the word of God, which one day will burn up, right? And Peter tells us that here in, uh, in, verse, in verse 10, actually, at the end of verse 10, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. I don't know about you guys, but there's plenty of times in my life, or even just in a single day, where I look back and I think, wow, I just wasted a whole day, right? And, and like, we're not getting any, any younger, and I know you think, like, you're, you are young, right? But you're constantly getting older. Your path to death is getting closer and closer, right? Like, we cannot, in a sense, redeem our time. We cannot revert back to what once was. And so understanding that, it puts into perspective, well, what am I doing that is important? Am I wasting my time on something that's, you know, trivial and temporal or something that's important and eternal? And that's something that you can gain and understand now even at a young age. So he goes on to say, not only are the heavens, will they pass away with a great noise, but he says the elements will melt with fervent heat. And that's an interesting way that, that Peter puts it here, um, saying that the elements, the elements of the earth will no longer be found. He says that they will melt. Basically, the earth will melt. They'll be burned up. It will dissolve. That's crazy. That God is going to burn up and dissolve heaven and earth. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Again, the word melt means to melt down the elements of creation or to dissolve, the same word that we see here in verse 11. Um, again, it carries the idea of dissolving. And it's translated in verse 11 and 12. All these things will be dissolved. The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. Now, this is the one time where fire is not cool, guys, right? Because God is going to be destroying uh, what he created, which was good in the beginning, but that we have tainted because of our sin. 
And, and it, sounds, it, sound, it can sound scary, but it's also a beautiful thing because the wickedness and everything that we see here on earth will be destroyed, and God's going to create something new. And we're going to see that at the end of verse 13, where he's going to create a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we all desire righteousness, right? We all desire good. We all desire justice. We all desire, none of us want evil in the world. None of us want cancer in the world. None of us want bad things happening in the world. And so God's going to create a place where none of that will exist. And that's a beautiful thing to hope for and to look forward to. So verse 11, no, verse, let's finish verse 10. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So these works, again, things that we, I mean, think, what's the most, there's the seven wonders of the world, right? Anybody know them off the top of their head? Guess they're not that wonderful. Uh, the pyramids one? Pyramids. Huh? Wall of China. Taj Mahal. Where's my homeschool kids? I'm just kidding. Actually, where's my public school kids? They probably know this one. Yeah, Google. Hey, Siri. Um, all right, so, but we get the point. Like, all these, literally everything that is man-made, I mean, everything on earth, but all these beautiful things, you know, like things that, you know, to some people are more valuable than a person's life, right? And all these things, all these wonderful, magnificent things that we have accomplished as a human race are going to be gone. I mean, who cares about the Great Wall of China and the pyramids and the Eiffel Tower and whatever else there is, my house or whatever, right? My video games, my, my, my clothes and all that. It, it's not going to matter in the end. It has no eternal value attached to it. And these works, both the earth and the works that are in it, will be burned up. And I believe that's the physical works, but also some of the works that we, we do as people, that they're not going to mean anything. All the accomplishments that we create. And again, this isn't to, to be a Debbie Downer and say, well, I'm never going to try and strive to do anything in my life. There's a perspective that we have to have. It's to not just quit and be lazy and not do anything because it's not going to mean anything at the end of the world. No, like there's good things that we do as people to uh, establish and further the kingdom, Right? But we have to have a perspective on what is eternal and what is temporal. And so some of these temporal things that we do in, on earth now, they are going to be burned up, as Peter tells us at the end of verse 10. Then he goes on to say in verse 11, with this in mind, okay, the anticipation that Jesus is coming back, with the anticipation that there's some things that we do are temporal, they will be burned up someday at the end of the millennial reign. With, with that understanding, there is a, a practical way that we should start living, or already be living, right? He says in verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, again, it has to do with the heating up, the burning, uh, the, the going away. Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So, I mean, that, that's a, I mean, that hits home. That's a challenge for any of us that read this. For any of us that are born again and follow Jesus, Jesus, first of all, do I anticipate that Jesus is coming back? Do I want him to come back? Because I remember when I was in youth, I remember there was one kid in particular, 
He was young, and he, he kept saying, man, I hope Jesus does not come back until I get married, right? Like, I want to get married first. I want to experience what marriage, he was just, he just, that's just who he was. He loved love and, and all that stuff. And so he's like, man, I don't want Jesus to come back until I get married, right? He can come back the day after, but let me get married first. And, and I use that example because I think some of us are that way, not so much with marriage, but maybe other things. You know, like, like God, can, can, you, can you wait at least until I can experience and do things that I've always looked forward to doing, right? We have to be excited for Jesus to come back. We want him to come back. Otherwise, if we're not, then we have this, then the world has this temporal hold on us. If we love the world too much, then we're going to want Jesus' coming back to be delayed, right? If we love the world too much. And so that's the question for us. Where is my heart when it comes to the world or when it comes to Jesus? And if it's all for Jesus, then Jesus, come back, right? I mean, I could sit up here and say, well, man, I want to see my kids grow up. You know, like, I want to see this. I want to experience what it's like to be a a grandparent or whatever, right? But do I want to... Do I want to delay the Lord's coming? Not that I can, but do I want the Lord's uh, coming to be delayed just because I want to live here on earth and experience these things? No, because there's so much better that's going to come when he comes for his bride and his church. So since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Man, our perspective on God's plan for creation should motivate us to live godly lives. It should motivate us to live godly lives. He says, what manner of persons ought you to be? Not just who you are, but how are you living? Is it in holy conduct, in godliness? The phrase, what manner, is not a question, but an exclamation. And the word manner means what kind or sort of person am I supposed to be? Think about the kind of person you should be since God is going to dissolve everything that we know to be, right? What kind of person would you be? And the word ought carries the idea of necessity. There's often a big difference between what you are and what you should be, right? So what I am may be different than what I know I should be. And with the perspective that Jesus is coming back, that all these things are going to end, that I should live a life of godliness and holiness, that my conduct should be different because God can come back at any moment. And again, you don't want to be caught with your pants down, right? And that's just a figure of speech. You don't want to be caught with your pants down. You don't want to be caught doing something dumb. In the same sense, you don't want to be caught doing something dumb with your parents walking in, right? You don't want to. And that's why we hide things, right? Otherwise, if we didn't have shame, we we wouldn't hide things. But there, we have shame for a reason because we know what we're doing is wrong and we don't want other people to find out. Now, who cares about what other people think? Most importantly, we need to think, what does God think? Now, we have to also understand that we know that God knows all no matter what. I can't go into the deepest, darkest room of my house and hide from him. He knows all. But with the perspective of understanding that he's coming back, I don't want to waste my time. It's not that like so much... God's going to catch me in some wrong sinful act. It's, I don't want to be caught up and be like, yo, I didn't do anything for the past five years, right? I was just living for myself. 
And if I truly love God, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for him, and I'm going to live as the way that I ought to live, which here Peter tells us that it should be in holy conduct and godliness. I love that. First, our lives should be uh, lived in holy conduct. This, uh, there's, there's two characteristics. There's the holy conduct, and then there is the godliness. And holy conduct has an idea to do with a, a separation, right? That's what ho- holiness is. It's, it's separate from what is sinful or evil. And so for us, we're to be holy in the sense that we're not just separated from the world, but rather we are separated unto God. Because the only thing that is holy in the entire universe is what? God, right? And anything else that is considered holy is holy only because of God, right? There's no such thing as holy water or holy grounds, right? Uh, Unless it has to do with an association of God, because God is the only thing that's holy. Nothing else apart from God can be considered holy. And so we are considered holy not just because we're separated from the world and the standards of the world, but because we are separated unto God himself. And so our lives should be uh, lived and devoted to God himself. And, and, And the natural repercussion to that is then we are then separated from the world, right? Because the world lives lives that are not according to God's standards. And we see that. I mean, it's pretty obvious you guys don't live in a bubble, that the way that our world is going, that it, it, is contra- it contradicts everything that God is and all the things that he has established in his law, in his morals, in his values, and everything that he is. It contradicts it. So when we move towards God, we're also moving away from the world. So we're going to have holy um, conduct and godliness. And godliness here has the idea of a, a devotion towards God. Um, it's what we are before him. You know, God is our father, and as children of him, uh, we should resemble who he is. It's, it's pretty much as simple as that. Spurgeon says this in regards to what Charles Spurgeon and what manner of persons we ought to be. He says this, The king is coming, and he is coming to his throne and to his judgment. Now a man does not go up to a king's door and there talk treason, And men do not sit in a king's audience chamber when they expect him every moment to enter and there speak ill of him. The king is on his way and almost here. You are at his door and he is at yours. What manner of people ought ye to be? How can you sin against one who is so close at hand? You know, we have to understand that Jesus is coming. The king is coming. And we should be anticipating and living lives that are honoring to him. Peter goes on to say in verse 12 that one, okay, we're supposed to live a holy conduct and godliness and godliness in our lives. And then two and three in verse 12 that we are to be uh, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So again, do we look for, do we anticipate, do we want him to come or do we want him to be delayed because we just love this world too much? So three times in three verses, in verse 12, 13, and 14, Peter's going to use these, this verb to look for, that we're to be looking for the return of Jesus. There's an eager expectation that we should have. I mean, it, 
It's just like a child when their parent is gone for a certain amount. Like, okay, for instance, when Whitney was gone for a week, I had an eager expectation that she was coming back, right? Like, I was excited because a week had gone by. In the same sense, when you haven't seen somebody in a while and, and you know and you set up a plan to see them, you're eagerly anticipating to see them because you love them, right? You, you want to see them again. I can only think of, like, you know, somebody who, who's in military and goes off and leaves their family for a certain amount of months or years and just that, that wonderful anticipation of then seeing them again and counting down when you get to see them. And, and so we should have that same anticipation yet even more because of our love towards God, that we want him to return. So not only are we looking for his return, but Peter says that there is a hastening, right? The hastening, the coming of the day of God. And now what does that mean to hasten um, the coming of the day? So in light of verses 8 and 9, the that the Lord's coming seems delayed while he waits for all to come to repentance. We know that, that he's long-suffering. So there is somewhat of a delay, but it's only because he's long-suffering. Uh, Peter here may mean that as we live godly lives and proclaim the gospel to lost, that we have a part in the speeding up of the Lord's return. Now, not so much on his time. It's not like he's seeing, okay, well, they're living godly lives, they're sharing the gospel, this and that, that he's going to like, all right, I'm going to bump it up a day. But I think from our perspective that it changes, that there is a hastening of the coming of the day of God. And Peter goes on to say, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. God is going to annihilate and destroy the heavens and the earth, and we will enter into the eternal state, which again we see at the end of the millennial reign. And Peter goes on to end verse 13. Nevertheless, we... According to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So again, it sounds like fire and brimstone and this, and, and you know, it's horrible. But it's all leading to something good and something wonderful. God is going to tear down what was bad and what was tainted. And he's going to create something that is beautiful, pure, and new. Something that is uh, where, where righteousness will dwell. Now, I don't think we have an understanding of how awesome that's going to be. Because we, we ourselves are tainted by sin, and, and we don't so much desire righteousness as we ought to. But to understand a little bit that righteousness will dwell in this new heaven and new earth, man, it's going to be awesome. Just like I referenced to earlier, think about it. When there's just righteousness dwelling on the land, we don't need police, right? You don't need guns. You don't need any types of weapon because you don't need to protect yourself because bad's not going to happen. We don't need doctors, right? We don't need, uh, I can't think of any other examples, but you get the point, right? Righteousness, we don't need judges. We don't need a whole, um, what's that called? You know when you like got to do jury duty and court, the whole, what's that whole system called again? Yeah, the judicial system. We don't need any of that, right? You're not, you're not going to be called to go to court and, and be a juror. Well, you guys are too young, but you're not going to have to do that. You're not going to have to, you know, vote on, well, are they guilty or not guilty? Because we're all going to be freed from the sin and the evil and wickedness that's in the world because righteousness will dwell. Righteousness will dwell. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, it, it shows us and reveals to us, even in the Old Testament, the promise of this new heaven and new earth. Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. 
So it's like when we think back, we're really not going to think back. It's like who who cares about, you know, my cat or, you know, my bedroom or my accomplishments or my lack of accomplishments. Who cares, right? A new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is a glorious characteristic of this new heaven and new earth. Man, it's going to be, be awesome. This recreation of this world is also described in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, uh, which Pastor Kevin just touched on the past two weeks. He sa- it says here in Revelation, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, no, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now again, do, do you see the excitement and how wonderful this place is going to be? Because there will be no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more wickedness, no more evil, no more diseases, no more famines, no more wars. It's all going to reign in righteousness because of the one who is righteous, right? And that is God. And the word dwell here means to dwell permanently. It carries the idea to live at home. And righteousness dwells there again. Why? Well, because God will dwell there. Righteousness here is the personification of righteousness there. It's something to look forward to. It's something to anticipate. And with that in mind, there's a way that we have to live as believers, as those who follow Jesus. Now, if you don't follow Jesus, you don't have that anticipation. But we know that he loves you and cares for you so much. Two things, that, he's, that God sent his only son to die for you. And two, he is long-suffering in his return because he wants you to turn to him. The Bible tells us point blank that he does not want anyone to perish. That's in verse 9. That's the type of heart in God that we have. He doesn't want anyone to perish. All you have to do is come to repentance to him, confess and believe that he died and rose again. And as simply as that, we are saved by grace through faith. Again, salvation doesn't have to happen on an altar call. It doesn't have to be a sinner's prayer. It doesn't have to be on a retreat. It doesn't even have to be in a church. It's a simple belief in God, repentance and belief, as we are saved by grace through faith. Let's pray.